0: From PRX. Today on Studio 360, why Michelle Obama's official portrait is a case study in how to appreciate art in the digital age.
1: I got some emails from people who said they didn't like it, and then they went to see it in person, and then they emailed me afterwards and said it made me cry, it's so beautiful. I mean, paintings are meant to be viewed in person.
0: Amy Sherrill gives me a gallery tour of her latest paintings. Plus,
2: 96 Tears is probably the first punk rock song.
0: We trace the roots of American punk back to Detroit with a song that hit the top of the charts in 1966.
3: It's the first garage punk song with its piercing organ riff, bare bones vocals, and lo-fi production. Outside of the organ, that's everything you want that will come later.
0: Our latest American icon, 96 Tears by Question Mark and the Mysterians, just ahead on Studio 360, right after this. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson, and I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken piece. Very well done.
4: Editing is all about timing.
5: I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right?
4: Studio
6: 360. With Kurt
1: Anderson. Let's just start by saying wow again. (laughs) Let me just take a minute. It's amazing.
0: That's Michelle Obama last year at the National Gallery at the unveiling of the official portraits of her and her husband. In the suddenly famous painting of her, her skin is gray and she looks very serious, a little intense, and she's wearing this geometric print dress against a background that's solid, robin's egg blue.
1: But I'm even more proud of the extraordinary woman and artist who made this portrait possible, Amy Sherrill.
0: Amy Sherrill had been a successful artist, but known as much for getting a heart transplant a few years ago at age 39 as for her paintings. But once that picture became public, people suddenly had a lot of opinions about Amy Sherald and her work. Many of them complained that the portrait didn't look sufficiently like the smiling,
1: electric, telegenic Michelle Obama they adored. I'll take the criticism because there's no way in the world I can make a painting that made the millions of people that are invested in her emotionally and every other kind of way happy. As tough as that must have been,
0: Sherald's work is kind of a case study in how to appreciate art
1: in the digital age. That is, in real life, looking at the actual thing. I got some emails from people who said they didn't like it, and then they went to see it in person, and then they emailed me afterwards and said, it made me cry, it's so beautiful. I can't, you know, so it's, it's, I mean, paintings are meant to be viewed in person. Which is exactly why, when we made plans to get together and talk, we decided to
0: do that at the Hauser & Wirth Gallery in New York City, Chelsea, where she's having a solo show called The Heart of the Matter. The exhibit's in a huge white loft space and consists of eight huge portraits of non-famous black people. So this one, which I see is called Handsome, is indeed this handsome young man um, looking straight at us, as in all all of your portraits. He's wearing a short-sleeved polka dot blue shirt with white pants. Unflashy, unexceptional pose. Uh, Just hanging out. Just hanging out. Monochrome, I don't know, what color is that? Uh, Creamy gray. Yeah, it's a nice background. Vanilla. Um, Gray skin, which all of your
1: people have yes. lately or the mm-hmm. last decade or so, right? Yeah, since I found myself. Really? Found my artistic DNA. I, I say that, yeah. So that wasn't until your thirties 30-something. Mid, mid to late 30s. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess I'm a late bloomer.
0: So so the, the finding your DNA in terms of this straightforward, highly representational style and the gray mm-hmm. scale skin all happened at the same time?
1: Yeah, I mean just trying to figure out what kind of art or, you know, it's a painter what kind of paintings I wanted to make um, for the rest of my life, you know, and that's, I started thinking about that in college and went from kind of self-portrait-like um, Frida Kahlo, Salvador Dali-esque paintings to this, but it took me a long time to get there, you know.
0: Does that feel in retrospect or at the time like going from being young to being grown up?
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, kind of, it does. I yeah, well, let Look at
0: this giant one, which is unlike uh, most of your work because of its scale and because you've started doing things that aren't just monochrome. It's called Precious Jewels by the Sea.
1: This I is there's a sky, yeah. there's a beach, there's a, there's yeah. an umbrella, there are people on piggyback. Yeah, it's uh, these. There's two paintings in the show that are the largest paintings that I've done thus far in my career. Um, for one main reason, it's just that I have a bigger studio now. So it's something I've wanted to do for a long time and just didn't have the space for it. Um, And also just had to really consider what it meant for me to move away from the individual um, paintings, uh, I loosely call them portraits, um, into something more, with more of a narrative, I guess. And so I deal with that by having, I think, well, I think for the most part, my horizon lines are going to be low, lower. So there's still... There's Almost, a lot of blue sky There's there. a lot of blue sky there, yeah. yeah. Um, so it still effectuates the same kind of quiet um, serenity that you might feel in the individual yeah. portraits. But a lot, I I don't know, do you worry that, like, well, this is going to be t- too likable, too cute, too something like that? No, I don't. And I guess the main reason that I don't is because you really don't get to see images of um, African-Americans in these kinds of scenarios, you know, historically speaking, like within the art canon. Right. And so that was the impetus for me to make the work in the first place was just thinking about, you know, one, what kind of work I wanted to make, but then um, looking at the work that was being made around me and thinking about what was missing. And for me, that's what was missing. And so... Um, the movie Big Fish was also a huge inspiration because that. it really got funny. me thinking, yeah, about those kinds of narratives and the Tim Burton, frivolity, right? huh? Tim Burton, and Big yes, Fish. Tim Burton. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, they are simple and beautiful and light, and um, I like to call them a resting place, yeah. and I think that's that's why it's important. Right.
0: The idea again of the colors of the the clothes these people are wearing. Sometimes they're old-fashioned. Sometimes they're modern and bold. Yeah. They, they vary. But the clothes. One's eye is drawn to the clothes because they're graphic and colorful, especially given the the monochrome of most of the backgrounds and the yeah. grayness of the skin color. Yeah. So, are you? Is it, are clothes one of your subjects?
1: Um, they I do put a great amount of thought into it. Based, I mean, because it is like a huge part of the painting. Because there is nothing else. There's not a background. They're not standing on a street corner, or anything like that. So. All those things I do take into consideration um, to make an interesting painting. Good for you, yeah. admitting that you want to be entertaining. I like painting beautiful paintings, and so that's yeah. just, yeah. All these decisions that I make are aesthetic first, and then all the discourse and, you know, all that other stuff becomes comes afterwards, but it's not like I go into the studio thinking about words and wanting to say this with this color or do this with that. You know, it's just like, I see it. I think it's cool. And I work with it, and then, you know, i let the art historians write about it. Or, or have your own, like, oh, look what I was doing. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of that for me comes like a year or two later.
0: Well, you're, you're, not, you're doing not what Tom Wolfe uh, w- accused artists of doing, which is making the painted word right? I yeah. mean, you don't start with a theory and an idea, and then yeah. here's what I'm going to do to enact my yeah. theory.
1: Yeah, it's backwards. Um, mm-hmm. so, and the gray, the gray skin came that way? Yeah, it came because I thought it looked cool. And then, in hindsight, I looked back and I, I thought, you know, well, maybe I was subconsciously struggling with the, um, the work being marginalized, knowing that I was painting um, black figures and that um, that in itself could, could be turned into a political statement, uh, and wanting to try to steer the conversation into a more universal um, experience. And it's not that the work can't be employed in that way. It can be employed in many different ways right. and mean many different things to different people, but I just didn't want it to be sequestered to that one area. To make it a little more generic in some way, or, or universal, I guess. It's yeah, universal. It would yeah. be interesting to see. Have you
0: ever painted a portrait of a white person with gray skin? No. That nope. would be interesting.
1: No, it won't. <laughs> it w- you won't? No, it be- wouldn't be interesting.
0: Really? Yeah,
1: I don't well, think okay. so. Because only black people can be, have gray skin? No, I just don't <laughs> paint white people. Oh, because why? Because there's millions and millions of images of, people of white people, and white people painting white people. Yeah. I mean, if you think about how many um, black painters there were, if you think about art history from cavemen to present, and you think about the fact that the first black art show was probably in the early 1900s. It's like you guys have... No, right. oh, I get it. Yeah.
0: So that is, a, that is a political act, though. I mean.
1: It is. It is. It's a reclaiming of time. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And it's an, you know, I feel like it's my um, obligation in a good way to, because I'm a figurative painter, is because I do have that power to assert those narratives that, you know, into the art canon that, were, that weren't ever present sure. there before. For sure. Yeah. Um, shall we sit? So did
0: you always think, oh, I'm going to be a painter? Because, you know, coming of age as you did in the 90s, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, painting was, eh.
1: yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know,
0: into, indeed for your whole life
1: almost. Yeah. Uh, but did you always say, no, painting is my thing? Uh, Yeah, for the most part. Yeah. I mean, my, my parents tried to convince me otherwise for about three or four years. About but.
0: art in general? Yeah, but art in general. But not about the medium of
1: oil paint. Well, they didn't even know what that was no. or what it meant. You know, it's just like they were just buying stuff that was on a list that my art teacher gave them for me to buy. You know, so my parents were born in the 1930s. So I know they had you late. Yeah. So to become an artist was like, what do you mean you want to be an artist? Like, that's not how are you going to make money. Um, I'm not even sure that they had even been to museums up until that point. You know, they went to see plays and other stuff, but museums weren't. This is in, in, in Columbus, of, Georgia? yeah. Even in, I mean, my, the only my mom has been to a museum because she had to come to see me. You know, it's not it's not like it was um, part of their culture growing up. Right. I mean, they grew up in the south in Mobile, Alabama. So it's just, you know, I always say they're lucky that they weren't lynched. Yeah. They're extremely religious, like a Pentecostal-ish church? It's not Pentecostal. It's like, it Assemblies was a non-denominational. No? It's called the Worldwide Church of God. Uh-huh. I'm, I think they're still around. It was non-denominational, so we were... Kind of Jewish because we kept the Sabbath, we we like kept all of the holy days of the Old Testament. So Day of Atonement, Passover, Days of Eleven That's Bread, eccentric. Feast of Tabernacle. Yeah, it was yeah, it was a lot. Um, so there, so it's it's not. Uh, I wouldn't call it fundamentalist religion, but it was just strange in the sense of like you couldn't celebrate your birthday, you couldn't wear makeup, you know, like it was those kinds of things that were a little bit extreme.
0: Well, so it wasn't just the normal parental thing of saying, "Hey, Art, how are you going to make your..." Living? It was probably that added to it, right? I mean,
1: yeah, I mean, I think for my parents, it was it was about the fact that you know, uh, my father was the first of his a family to go to college he was a dentist so I mean all those things matter it's about um, creating a legacy and they didn't see that happening with art you know my father was a dentist my um, great uncle was a mortician and um, my aunts found a way to get their master's degrees at NYU back at that time they had programs for that kind of stuff but um, so education was important there was there was a and and it a was culture of ambition yeah, yeah it, it was a way out yeah, yeah. How did you make your way to art and decide I, I want to do this? I say it just chose me. I don't, you know, I had a great art teacher who really encouraged me, um, even from high school, to create images that were my own ideal. Um, and it's just, I don't know, it's what I felt comfortable doing. I didn't have to interact with people. I was super self-conscious, and uh, you know, I didn't do a lot that I was interested in because I didn't want to be in rooms with people that I didn't know. It was just like over the top self-conscious so it was easy for me to do it and it's what I excelled at and there was no conversation about visual learning then but I was a visual learner so it's just you know what my proclivity was is to do this stuff or to be a chef that's what I was also good at was cooking
0: and you were like the last pre-internet generation as well
1: I got my email address when I was 25 there you go (laughs) which which
0: might be why you had the time and inclination to do this.
1: Yeah, I mean, I say that's when, when people ask me why I do what I do, I say I, th- I think it's because of when I was born, because there, I didn't, there were, I had a Tandy 2000. We had to pretty much code it ourselves to like make the games work. And for me, making art was painting a figure. I really didn't know who Jackson Pollock was, Andy Warhol, or, you know, these other creators and thinkers that were bending the rules. So I, this is what I grew up thinking I was supposed to do. And so that's what I did. To, to be good and be realistic. To be good, and be realistic, yeah.
0: Did you ever have a, a, a non-representational phase?
1: I kind of did when I studied with Grace Hardigan in, in uh, graduate school. Um, the paintings got a little looser and a little drippier, but ultimately they never lost the figure. Um and it just wasn't something that I knew I could expound on for the rest of my life. And so I knew I was still looking for what it was that I was going to make.
0: You you it seems like you need a an armature or a I'm going to do within this thing. You need some kind of almost conceptual aesthetic structure. Maybe? Me? You to make work? Yeah. I mean like you're not doing, you know, changing crazily from abstraction to this to the, whatever. I mean
1: Yeah. Well, the thing is, you know, I,
0: I mean, if you know you're doing this, you kind of know what you're doing. Every yeah. Day.
1: Once you become known for something, then that's kind of what you do. Like I could change it, but I think at this point in my career, that would be a mistake, right? Career-wise. So, career-wise, yeah. It's like you make Coca-Cola, you want Coca-Cola to taste like Coca-Cola, yeah. like we see in the South. You can get Diet Coke. So, it, you know. Cherry Coke. Yeah. So what you do becomes your brand, yeah. essentially, and um, you can exp- expound on that and, and, you know, like I went from individual to these multi-figure and I'll keep challenging myself to do different things, but they will all tie into, you know, what I, this, this body of work. And How practical of you. Yeah. Well, you know, I had friends who, well, a particular one friend who made really great work, became really well known and didn't want to make that work anymore and he stopped making the work and he doesn't he didn't have a gallery after a while like he just ended up not being an artist for a long time he's still trying to make his way back in. Do you ever like my god I'm gonna do a still life or a landscape today I'll just keep it secret? No I have no interest. I love painting faces. I love painting the figures. So the Obamas. Yeah. Uh, Are they the only uh, commission you've done? Yes. Do you want to do any others? Not really. I mean, if I could choose two people to do, I would do Serena Williams and I would do Meghan Markle.
0: Well, that could happen. Yeah, maybe. When it was unveiled, uh, Michelle Obama told this story of of meeting you at the Mm -hmm. interview in the Oval Office. Mm -hmm. Now, I've been in the Oval Office once with no president in it, just Mm -hmm. empty. And it's pretty amazing just to step in the thing. It is. You, A, it's a big job interview, (laughs) like the biggest job interview. Yeah. And it's the Oval Office. And there's the president
1: and the first lady. What was in your heart and feeling and head? I was I was nervous. The first thing that happened, and I don't know whether anybody else notices this when they walk in, but the rest of the White House is like this really kind of strange fluorescent green light. And then when you walk to the Oval Office, it's like lit for television. And that almost triggered my brain to think that it wasn't happening when it really was happening so for about five seconds I was like stuck in this moment of like am I dreaming or is you know or or is yeah yeah, Barack walking towards me and so um I snapped out of it and yeah shook his hand um I was nervous and he's he um it just so happened that we all wore the same color that day and so he's like, looks like you got the memo. And I was like, memo, what? What are you talking? You know, I was so nervous that I didn't get the joke, and then I got the joke, and I'm like, okay, I'm just going to sit down before I say anything stupid. But um, it was it was great. It was just a 30-minute conversation about what I do, what else I do outside of painting and life. So if she had been, you know, Michelle Robinson,
0: Chicago Hospital Executive, would, you have, would the image be precisely what we see in the
1: National Gallery? That's interesting. Um, hmm... Probably yeah, because what I presented to the world, I think, it's the real her, uh-huh. and not the the image of you know the millions of photographs that we have on with of her on the internet. Meaning very, with these big, beautiful smiling and these and wow, look at those arms and all those Michelle Obama image. Yeah, things. I think I think for me that my paintings are personal and private, and that's the kind of feel that I wanted to give to it—something personal and private and not a glamour shot or anything like that. It's a painting. And it's its a sobering moment in history and um, a very special moment. So I wanted to, you know, all of that, I, I, and I'm, I'm saying this now, I don't think I was thinking about that when I was um, making it exactly, but um, at the end of it, when I look back at it, like those are the things that I, that I think were kind of circulating in my head. In
0: 10 years, it, it will just be w- one big thing you did. Do you, do you look forward to that time when It's not all about that? All about the... Michelle Obama's portraitist.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny. I went from the artist who survived a heart transplant to become a famous painter to the artist that painted Michelle Obama. And I'm pretty sure I could climb Mount Everest and I would still be that because she is still who she is and she has such a great influence, you know, worldwide. And, you know, and I guess I'm okay with that. Uh... Amy Sherald, it has been a uh, great pleasure meeting you. you, talking to you. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Thanks. Thank you.
0: Amy Sherald's show at Hauser & Worth in New York City is free to see, but it's up for just a few more days. Coming up next... The number one song this week in
7: 1966. It's very sexy g- garage music. It's innocent. You down there, and I'll be on top. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I'll cry. You can only write like that when you're a kid. That's next on Studio 360.
1: Too many teardrops for one heart to carry on. Studio 360.
0: For the second and third weeks of October 1966, the song that topped the charts was Reach Out, I'll Be There by The Four Tops. It is quintessential feel-good Motown, I'm soulful, poppy, big-hearted. I'll be there. But this very week in 1966, another song bumped I'll Be There out of number one. It was also recorded in Michigan, a bit north of Detroit, but this song could not be more different than I'll Be There. Instead of a shoulder to cry on, it promised, after a love gone wrong, that the ex was gonna regret it. Also had a very different, more basic sound. The first proto-stirrings of Detroit punk. For our next American Icon story, Pedro Rafael Rosado and Jocelyn Gonzalez have the story of 96 Tears by Question Mark and the Mysterians. That's an actual question mark in the front man's name. They were a group of Mexican-American teenagers who recorded the song that made America cry, 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 cry.
4: It's 1962 and three kids in Saginaw and Bay City fall hard for the fast driving tunes of The Ventures and Dwayne Eddy.
8: So they get together to start their own band.
6: We were playing uh, The Ventures and all kinds of instrumentals. We didn't sing, it was just totally instrumentals. I'm Robert Lee Balderrama. I'm the founder of Question Mark and Mysterians and a guitar player. My parents were migrant workers from Texas. And they would come up here in the summertime and work out in the fields. Then they got jobs at General Motors and found out what it was like to make better money. And then we bought a farm in Bay City, Michigan.
4: Balderama dreamed of playing guitar when he first saw Les Paul on TV, but he never thought his family could afford one. Then one day, his dad brought home an acoustic that was a little banged up, but still had strings and Baldorama picked up a few lessons from his brother.
8: The trio he formed, with friends Larry Borjas on drums and Robert Martinez on guitar, played their surf rock homages at local festivals and dances. But people kept asking.
6: Well, who sings in a band? I go, oh no, we don't sing in a band, we just play instrumentals. They said, well, you guys should get a singer. Robert said he knew a singer. It was his brother, Rudy, Rudy Martinez. He sounded like Mick Jagger and... Rudy was a great dancer, so we hired him as our lead singer, front man.
4: Rudy went by the name Question Mark, and he always wore dark glasses. He already had that rock star magnetism, and he emerged as a creative force in the group. But Robert says there was another crucial element to the group's evolution.
8: That was the addition of Frank Rodriguez on keyboards, who'd been playing since he was a young child.
1: The Mysterium! The
8: Mysterium! The Mysterious. Now they needed a real name for the band, and they found one on Saturday morning TV. We are the
4: Mysterians. The Mysterians was a 1957 Japanese sci-fi flick about humanoid aliens that arrive from Mars demanding land and Earth's women to breed new offspring. I In early 1966, Question Mark and the Mysterians started to do some demos, and the lineup changed around to include Frank Lugo on bass and Eddie Serrato on drums.
6: One time we were practicing over Frank Rodriguez's house, and I was first learning the power chord. I would play from G to C, back and forth, playing back. Frankie started playing the keys onto it, and our drummer, Eddie Serrato, and Frank started playing the bass and the keys. And... Question mark started singing to it and he kept saying too many teardrops.
8: Question mark has said that he already had this song going around in his head when the instrumentation took shape with the rest of the band.
3: The original title was too many teardrops and then sort of as sophomore humor among the boys they're like we should call it 69 tears. <laughs>
4: Rob St. Mary is the director of the Detroit Punk Archive and a longtime Michigan radio host and producer.
3: But then they also realized that they're like, well, if we do that, they won't put us on the radio with that. I mean, because this was, of course, a year or two before where the Rolling Stones had to change it from let's spend the night together to let's spend some time together on Ed Sullivan. So this was still an era where you couldn't get
6: away with that kind of stuff.
8: Changing the title to 96 Tears, The Mysterians' next move was to somehow get the song recorded and distributed.
6: I feel Lily Gonzalez gave us the opportunity to record and to take a chance on us. Her one label was
3: very centered on traditional sort of, you know, rancheros, Mexican music, sort of border music.
4: But Lily Gonzalez had another label called Pagogo, where she was releasing songs sung in English.
3: And they said, you know,
6: we've got some songs and we've been playing this rock and roll music. And she's like, okay. We recorded 96 Tears in Bay City, Michigan, a place called Shields Recording Studio. Art Shields was the owner, and it had a, a closet that he turned into the control room where he had his four track uh, recorder in there.
3: This gentleman, since I guess sometime in the 50s,
6: he was recording
3: a lot of polkas. Because there was a lot of Polish immigrants into Bay County and, and into the thumb.
8: The lower peninsula of Michigan is shaped like a mitten, and the thumb is generally central Michigan. It's the area north of Detroit.
3: These kids went in, and they ran through it about, I guess, eight or nine times until they got pretty much a perfect take, because there was no overdubbing or anything, and said, there you go, there's your, there's your acetate, there's your two sides, good luck. You have this catchy little couple note intro on the organ that gets you into the song. And it just chugs along.
7: Two minutes here, for one heart.
1: To be crying. Two minutes here, for one heart.
4: 96 Tears combines a number of musical threads running through rock and roll in the 1960s.
5: Before they were Question Mark and the Mysterians, they were also a surf rock band. Surf rock bands used a lot of steady eighth notes. John Pirellis is the chief pop
8: critic of the New York Times. The
5: Batman theme was around in the mid-60s, too, with repeated notes and major to minor chords. It was in the air. It just sounded... It just sounded better in 96 Tears.
4: And then there's the instrument delivering 96 Tears' famous hook. It's a Vox Continental organ, not a Farfisa as many people think. It points towards the ethnic roots of the group because it sounds like an accordion.
8: Robert Balderrama's dad had played the instrument and some of the Mysterians' fans... Recognize that sound too. Being Mexican American and growing
9: up with that accordion sound, that uh, oompa oompa kind of thing that, that originated, I guess, from Germany and Poland that came to Mexico. But the the feel of the song "96 Tears" and what Question Mark does with it definitely has calls back to that that accordion interplay of of chords and notes and, and close chromatic figures that you can hear sometimes in in that music.
5: Well, to me, the beauty of 96 Tears is that this is America. In the late 19th century, you have German and Czech immigrants coming to Mexico to work, and they bring their accordions. The Mexicans love the sound of the accordion. They pick it up. They pick up the sound of the polka. They create Norteño music, beloved in northern Mexico and southern Texas. The sound of that accordion translates very nicely onto a Vox Continental organ, Bad Vox Continental Organ is played by some kids in Michigan, This Is America. When
6: the records got pressed, Lily Gonzalez told us, he goes, but what I want you to do is take the singles to the radio stations in the local area. See if we can get some airplay and take the records to the record stores.
4: They must have had great door to door salesmanship because 96 Tier started to pick up steam with local audiences.
6: Question mark got a phone call from one of the DJs in Saginaw, I think it was WSAM. People started calling in, requesting our song. And then we got calls from the record stores that we sold out. We also took their single to Bob Dell in Flint, Michigan, WTAC. And we got calls from the record stars in Flint, sold out.
8: CKLW AM800, also known as the Big 8, was based across the river in Windsor, Ontario. The station had a powerful AM signal that covered the Detroit area and reached cities as far away as Toledo and Cleveland in Ohio.
3: They eventually ended up on the Big 8, which was CKLW, based out of Windsor. They were a station that could take a regional single and break it nationally. They had that much pull. And then I'm
7: going to put you
0: We'll find out what happens at that Canadian station in 96 Tears when we return to this Studio 360 American Icon story right after a short break.
7: And when the sun comes up, I'll be on top. You'll be right down there looking up. And Studio 360.
0: We're back with our American Icons feature about the song 96 Tears by Question Mark and the Mysterians. Producers Pedro Rafael Rosado and Jocelyn Gonzalez pick up the story with what the lay of the land was musically when the record came out in 1966.
4: Roberto Avant-Mir is a professor at University of Texas, El Paso, and author of Rock the Nation, Latino Identities and the Latin Rock Diaspora. He's been studying how Latin music, along with blues and country, influenced the sound of rock and roll. Johnny Cash,
2: uh, "Ring of Fire." I don't know if if we can claim definitively that that "Ring of Fire" is like you know the the first song to use mariachi-style trumpets in like a you know a, a country song. I think it sounds to me like what I think Ranchera's song sounds like with the the trumpets a fiery blasting. Ring.
3: Bound. By wild desire. The
8: 1963 hit Louie Louie by the Kingsmen shares some musical DNA with 96 Tears, but it was originally written and performed in 1955 by a black musician named Richard Berry, who based his composition on a Cuban tune called El Loco Chacha.
4: as we get further into the late 50s and early 60s, it's not just Latino musical elements we're hearing in American rock. We're hearing Latino musicians.
2: This is a song that very overtly is a Latin song, and the whole song is in Spanish. You have this kid, Richie Valence who's totally pretending that his name is Valence and his real name's not, you know, Richard Valenzuela. He's being played up as Richie Valens, right, to be more palatable to the mainstream. One, two, tres, cuatro. Wooly Bully uh, by Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs. The first thing that got my attention from that song was that famous countdown, right? It does the one, two, one, two, tres, cuatro. And if you look at the album cover, right, it has this Mexican guy on the cover, even though they're wearing these, like, Egyptian costumes and pretending they're Egyptian because they're the Pharaohs. Sam was not Sam, but a guy named uh, Domingo Samudio, right? A Mexican-American from around Dallas, Texas, I believe. Mexican enough that he felt compelled <laughs> to throw Spanish into a, a, a song that became hugely, widely popular. But at the same time, he's not Domingo Zamudio, he's Sam Sham.
8: Avant Mir says the racial politics of the time didn't allow for the Mexican musicians in the Mysterians and other bands to be open about their identity. And yet, they couldn't help but include markers of their culture in the music.
2: The Chicano movement, which means, you know, pride in your culture and activism and you know being proud of who you are, that doesn't happen until the late 60s, right? Late 60s, early 70s. Mexicans and Latinos are are sort of caught up in this, this dominant notion of assimilation. Trying to be as mainstream as you can be. Trying to cover up your, your culture, right? Trying to change your name. There's this fear about being too ethnic, especially if you're going into popular music or movies or whatever popular culture. And I I think that's definitely there in the 1960s.
4: Ralph Valdez is the executive director of the Dearborn Arts Council and a longtime radio jock in Michigan. The Mysterian's Latin background resonated with him when he heard the song as a kid.
9: I grew up at a time when there were a lot of different ethnicities in my neighborhood, but no one was encouraged to express it. Although we were proud of our culture, it was more of like something that you kept amongst your family and didn't celebrate as it is today, I think it would have been harder for them to to make a hit out of a song that was more openly drawing from Hispanic roots. So I think they did it in a more clever
8: way. Even if the Mysterians weren't consciously thinking of their ethnicity in the presentation of the band, they certainly understood the value of having a distinct look. They dressed alike in cool paisley shirts with vests.
4: But most of their visual mystique came from question mark, their dynamic lead singer who never took off his shades.
7: Hey. Ah. I think a big part of Question Mark the Mysterious is Rudy Q? Question mark. He's got a voice, kind of sexy, kind of Spanish, kind of cool.
8: <laughs> Mary Cobra is the lead guitarist of the Detroit Cobras, a rock and soul band that's been around since the 90s.
7: He thinks he's from Mars, okay, so let's start with that. You know, he thinks himself as an alien, but he looks like a Mexican dude in spandex. And he does these, uh, you know, very uh, flashy dance moves. He, he always wears his shades. You never see his eyes. He's really a mystery. <laughs> He's like fabulous.
4: Here's Question Mark in an interview for the show Rock and Roll High School. This is when the band appeared at New York's Coney Island High in the late 90s. I mean,
8: like I created hip, you know, in, in rock and roll, you know. But I mean, okay, you had uh, a few hundred entertainers that have been referred to me. And i want to say because they've been referred to me. Yeah. James Brown, Prince, Michael Jackson.
3: To me, I see him as part of this, this tradition of Sun Ra. You have George Clinton that comes out of that. I think that in a way, his I'm from outer space and, and all of this stuff was a way to create a mythology around himself.
8: After 96 Tears became a hit in Detroit, Neil Bogart, a young VP at Cameo Parkway Records, who would become famous as president of Casablanca Records, made a deal for the rights to 96 Tears. He reissued it on Cameo with full marketing support, and the still-teenaged Mysterians went out on the road.
6: I was only 16, and Frank was 15. Our parents were not too crazy about that.
4: 96 Tears entered the Billboard charts at 112 in March of 1966 and began climbing. On October 1st, 1966, the band appeared on American Bandstand.
6: All righty. 96 Tears, gentlemen. Nice to see you. Welcome. Where's home? Saginaw,
0: uh, Michigan. Is that where you all got together? Uh, yes. Was I right in saying this is the first record?
1: Uh, yes, is that first record.
8: On October 29th, 96 Tears reached number one the song's success was especially meaningful for their hometowns and the Detroit area.
3: This really is the budding of a Detroit rock scene in a way. Because before that, there wasn't anything. There had been big singles on Fortune and big singles, obviously, in Motown by 1965. But rock and roll music didn't hit nationally until Mitch Ryder. And that was 1965. So Mitch Ryder hits, then, as I say, Bob Seger, 65, 66.
8: Beneath the above, into the eyes of love.
4: And then there was 96 Tears. These bands caused a major label feeding frenzy in Detroit in the years following the song's release. Think of Seattle after Nirvana in the grunge era.
3: So you have, you know, SRC on Capitol. You have... Frigid Pink on London Records. You have the Stooges and the MC5 and Elektra. And now I want to be your dog. Like, we have to pay attention to Detroit now as a rock city. It's not just Barry Gordy. It's not just Motown.
8: Rob St. Mary says that these Detroit rock singles reflected the city's no-nonsense attitude towards music. The rough-and-tumble simplicity of 96 Tears and how it was recorded signifies what we now call garage rock. Roberto Avant-Mir.
2: I want to say anywhere from 1964 to 1966 is the garage rock moment. It was this idea of stripped-down music, three chords, right? Anybody could play three chords. Very basic songs, basic riffs, very basic lyrics, right? It was about everybody thought they could be in a rock and roll band.
4: Pop critic John Perales.
5: You could hear that that guitar was cranked up a little too loud in the amplifier. You could hear that the electric organ had maybe a couple of keys missing. You you
8: could hear all of the defects, and that made it feel very human. As the 60s gave way to the 70s, rock got more psychedelic and progressive, and generally more complicated and adult.
4: 96 Tears was straightforward and honest, with the kind of DIY attitude that would soon be attached to a raw, rebellious sound coming out of England and New York.
2: There's a scholar, a music scholar named John Savage. This scholar said that 96 Tears is possibly or probably the first punk rock song.
7: And when the sun comes up, I'll be on top. you be right
1: down there,
3: up. Legs McNeil, who was the author of Please Kill Me, and he was one of the editors at Punk Magazine, said, he says it's a safe bet. It's the first garage punk song with its piercing organ riff, bare bones vocals, and lo fi production. Outside of the organ, that's everything you want that will come later.
8: It's ironic that this white Anglo sound could trace some of its roots to a bunch of Mexican kids in the Midwest. But for some Latino musicians who came after, it's a personal inspiration.
4: Ralph Valdez formed a Detroit-area punk band in the 1970s called the Algebra Mothers, or the Amoms.
9: For a lot of so-called punk or new wave bands early on, there was possibly an underlying mission to take keyboards away from the progressive rock idiom and make it seem like you could own it again as a simpler instrument, and 96 Tears kind of showed ways to do that. So for us as a band starting out, we just felt like we had to have a Vox Continental.
10: I'm Camilo Lara. I'm uh, the only member of the Mexican Institute of Sound, which is uh, my music project. It was intriguing to have that song and to hear something like that that was kind of a punkish pop song. I was amazed that those guys were Mexicans and they were in the middle of nowhere just doing this crazy quasi-punk song that was part of uh, the soundtrack of my childhood. Later in my life, I discovered that most of the songs on that time were less edgy and more conventional and more poppy, or at least the ones that succeeded at that time. So for me, this song to be like a top 20 hit in, in the U.S. was a miracle, was kind of a triumph for the underdogs. <laughs>
2: I think the Aretha Franklin
8: version in 1967 is outstanding, and I've been listening to that over and over and over and over. The cover versions of 96 Tears over the decades shows that artists are still finding
4: something to cry about. The English punk band The Stranglers connected with the song. And there's a Texas Tornadoes version with organ and accordion. By the
2: time you get to the 1990s, you start to see it covered by Latin bands. It's almost like rediscovering the song as a Latin song, you know, 20, 30 years later, right? So they're singing it in Spanish now, or they changed the song from 96 years and it's now called 96 Lagrimas. Also, some of them sound more punky, I think, in the way that we would think punk sounds nowadays, right? The loud, fast, aggressive
8: guitars with Spanish lyrics on top. <laughs> After 96 Tears, Question Mark and the Mysterians followed up with two singles, I Need Somebody and Can't Get Enough of You Baby. But Cameo Parkway was shut down in 1967, and the band's money and contract went down with it.
4: They went on to record with other labels with not much success, and the band disbanded in 1969, leaving them with the unfortunate label of One Hit Wonder, but Camilo Lara thinks applying this term to the Mysterians is an injustice.
10: That album, The 96 Tears, is just unbelievable, like upside, and I Need Somebody. They have so many great songs. Don't Tease Me is fantastic. And I think saying that they are a one-hit wonder is is pretty unfair. I mean, it talks more about the ignorance of not knowing how amazing and important they were than them not to be successful. Throughout the years, Question Mark and the Mysterians have
8: reassembled the group with various members, and the original lineup got back together in the
4: 90s. They still appear at special events when they can. Here's guitarist Mary Cobra.
7: I love Bobby Balderrama. I mean, I met the guys. They're, they're great. They're good old Spanish guys. And for me, it's a, it's a beautiful thing, like how it, it matters today.
9: Oh, it's it's immensely important that they continue to play. And what a hit. I mean, what, a, what an important piece of music that they did. Not only did they stay in the area,
8: but the song itself changed music or affected music in such a a measurable way. In August 2019, Bay City, Michigan hosted an event called 96 Tears Day with a benefit concert to aid the homeless and veterans.
4: There the Mysterians were, rocking out together again with Question Mark working the stage in his fedora and trademark sunglasses.
5: The song survives just because it's a perfect artifact. I'm sure there is some synthesizer plug-in that can give you the exact Vox Continental sound. And I'm sure people are trying to snarl like question mark. But the magic of them playing that together at the time, you know, pressed at that moment, and the kind of white-hot craziness of it makes it survive. It's very sexy
7: g- garage music. It's innocent. you down there and I'll be on top, you know what I mean? <laughs> and I'll cry. You can only write like that when you're a kid.
6: We did accomplish our goals when I was a little kid. And now I believe 96 Tears will go on forever.
0: That's Robert Lee Balderrama, guitarist and a founder of Question Mark and the Mysterians. Fifty-three years ago this week, 96 Tears hit number one. Our story was produced by Pedro Rafael Rosado and Studio 360's Jocelyn Gonzalez. Special thanks to Patrick Grant and WDET in Detroit. Studio 360's American Icons is made possible by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. And you can find dozens more of our American Icon stories and our long documentaries at Studio360.org. Next week, we'll be spending the whole show on another American icon, The Tales of Edgar Allan Poe. We talked to a whole lot of people about Poe, and you'll recognize some of these voices. One thing we asked was the first time they encountered Poe's writing.
1: I didn't particularly like reading, but it was unlike anything I'd ever experienced. I first encountered Poe as a nine-year-old, so I was reading uh, Sweet Valley High and uh, Black Beauty. That
5: was a rough time for me as a teenager.
1: Heavy on the girly fiction.
8: And I remember us all like sitting in class, just kind of closing our eyes and trying to imagine ourselves in this situation.
4: So it was a complete shock to my system. I kind of like fast forwarded it to the juicy part where the murder happened.
6: It was dark and depressing and I'm Catholic.
4: And that's where I, you know, started really appreciating the story.
1: It suited my my sense of the dark mystery of the world.
5: My grandfather was dying of cancer, so I was grappling with a big human problem.
1: There's something I really liked about being able to scare myself.
5: And somehow Poe seemed a way into it.
1: And tolerate fear and get through it. And when you're reading something frightening, you're in charge of your own fear. It's not like... Um, Being the victim of a trauma where this experience is just thrust on you, you can learn to pace yourself to put it down when it gets too much.
5: Part of the appeal he exerts comes from this insistence on confronting the really tough fact that everybody dies.
0: Join us next week, and you'll hear more from Bill Hader, Laura Lipman, R.L. Stein, Roger Corman, and many more talking about our next American icon, The Tales of Edgar Allan Poe. That's it for this week's show. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our production team is
4: Jocelyn Gonzalez Andrew
10: Adam
0: Newman,
4: Sandra Lopez-Monsalve
0: Evan Chung
7: Lauren Hansen
0: Sam Kim
7: Zoe Saunders
0: Tommy Bazarian
7: Morgan Flannery
0: And I'm Kurt Anderson.
7: He does these, uh, you know, very uh, flashy dance moves. He he always wears his shades. You never see his eyes. He's really a mystery. (laughs) He's, like, fabulous. Thanks very much for listening.
9: P R I Public Radio International.
0: Next time on Studio 360, how
8: Edgar Allan Poe changed everything. Where Emerson and Thoreau were like, "Let's go write about nature." Poe was like, "Okay, but one day you might turn against the people you love and destroy them. Just keep that in mind." So it's it's like the asterisk on the American dream.
0: Our latest American Icons hour, The Tales of Edgar Allan Poe. Next time on Studio 360.